All right, hey, let's do what we always do. I'm glad to be here. How about you? Give me some love. Awesome. Awesome. Can you keep them going real quick? Let's welcome everybody who's watching in online later this week to fire it up that you're here. Uh, there's a lot of people, just so you know, who can't maybe get here on a Sunday morning who dial in later in the week, and so it's just great. We really do consider you a part of uh, what we're doing here. But hey, my name is Tony. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I am thrilled. Thrilled that you made it out to church today. I don't, you know, it's not lighthearted that I say that. I know it's a big deal for you to, to get out and uh, get moving in the morning and to be here with us to kind of carve out an hour for God to speak in your life. That's a big deal. For those of you who are just checking us out, I'd say way to go. Way for giving church a shot. We think God really can meet you right in this, uh, these next few moments and do something special in your lives. But like the video said and Sam said, we are in a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And we're doing that because I think a lot of people uh, go through life going, I just want to be happy. And, you know, if I just had a few things, I'd be happy. I think I hear people all the time say things like, if I just had a little bit more money, then I'd be happy. Or, you know what, if I just lost a few pounds, then I'd be happy. And for heaven's sakes, if I drove a nicer car, man, I'd be happy. You know, I mean, all of us want our kids to be happy. The only problem with happiness that I've found is that it's temporary. It doesn't last. You know, it, it kind of, you know, fizzles out. It's kind of like a roller coaster. You kind of go up, you get it, and then you're back down just as quick as you got it. And so I, I've just been really wrestling in this thing. I go, I hope there's something more to life than just a pursuit of happiness. I hope there's something different. And so far in the series, we've kind of just labeled the difference and saying, you know what, I think what we chase is happiness, but what God longs for us to have is this thing called joy. This major, small word called joy. We've been saying it like this, that happiness is dependent on what happens to me. It's kind of dependent on the external circumstances. I mean, if I you know, buy a new home, then, I mean, I'm happy, sure, but, you know, just as quick as that, the fire alarms go off like I shared last week, and you just, you lose all happiness, and, but joy is different. It's not dependent on what happens to you. Joy is dependent on what's in me. Happiness is dependent on what happens to me. Joy is different because it is dependent on what's in me, and none could be more true than this last October. Uh, I had, uh, had a day off in October, and we were just hanging around our house, and Carrie's mom was coming in, and I just, I'm one of the few that actually loves it when the mother-in-law comes. You know, it's just great. I love it. Some of you guys cringe. You're like, oh, nothing worse could sound. But me, I'm like, yes, my kids love her more than they love me. And so it's just like day off, you know, to the max. Well, she was coming in, and we were also going to be watching Carrie's younger sister's son, which was kind of a good thing for me because I am massively outnumbered in our house with testosterone, so I could use all the help I could get. Well, he was about, you know, one and a half at the time. And I remember kind of hanging out in our house. We had a bunch of kids then, you know, or I mean, we still had kids. We didn't have more then, but we had kids, you know, and, and we got to a point, which I know most of you have had kids. You get to the point, you're like, we just got to leave. You know, like there's too much going on. We got to take a mess somewhere else. And one of our go-tos you know, especially during the winter is, you know, we love going to grab a, you know, like a latte or a mocha or something like that. And, and the kind of the coffee shops right here in Washington don't have really any areas for kids to, you know, screw around and do what they do. And so one of our go-tos is the Kelowna Coffee House in Kelowna. And if you've been there, it's a great, you know, coffee shop. And, and we love it because when you go in the door there, you kind of can check, you can get your stuff, and then kind of tucked away in the back, there's a kid's area, which is genius, you know? And, and also what I love, there's not that many toys. There's just enough toys that you can clean it up in two minutes, but there's toys, you know, kids love it. There's a little slide thing that you can go down. 
And I remember kind of getting up to the cash register, you know, buying a few lattes. Me, Carrie's mom, and Carrie, we, we all got some lattes. And then having the, the debate that we have every time we go to this coffee shop. We go, do you get the kids hot cocoa so they can feel like they're really cool and sip on, you know, stuff? And you get dirty looks from all of you who are like, do they give them coffee? No, I, it's hot cocoa, okay? And so do you give them hot cocoa or do you buy them a cookie? And, uh, and we, for some reason, decided let's, let's get them a cookie. You know, great dad, you know? And so we had four of the kids that needed a cookie. And so me and Carrie, just in a, in a quick moment, we, we just kind of looked over, like, those look good. And we ordered the cookies. We ordered four of them. And after I paid, they handed them to us. And, and we kind of needed to wait for our lattes. We sent the kids one by one with the cookies back to the area where they were going to play. And we waited until we got our lattes. Friends, that day, doesn't it sound great? I mean, it was a great day. I mean, we, we got our lattes, we go sit back there, we start sipping on, we're just talking, we're thinking we're kings and queens, you know, because we have just solved the parenting issue. They're, they're busy, we're busy, we're loving it. Until my wife sees out of the corner of her eye one of the cookies that we had just bought. And she looks and then looks again and notices that it's a monster cookie, which might not mean anything to you, but to us it's a major deal because we have just bought something that would literally poison our daughter Kara. Because there's peanuts in it. That's peanut butter. And our seemingly so great day turned into a panic that I never want to experience again. Uh, Carrie, I can still remember her going, Tony, is that, did we just buy monster cookies, and I go, I don't know, I don't, and, and she runs, and she grabs it, and she takes a bite, and she's like, there's peanuts in there, she's like, there is, and, and we know that Kara is severely, like, deathly allergic to these. She runs and grabs Kara, and Kara's holding onto her cookie, innocently, and she's just taking a bite, and our hearts sunk. Here we are, a few minutes earlier, sipping lattes, to the next minute going, Oh man, we're in Kelowna, we gotta, we gotta get all the kids into the Suburban, we gotta go flying home. We load the kids up, and it wasn't a few minutes later when Kara says, Mom, I can't feel my tongue anymore. And her hearts sank, I'm starting to tear up, and I'm trying to steer the car, and we're just flying, we, just, we know we have to get to the ER. And Carrie goes, I think I got to stab her with the epinephrine. And I go, yeah, you just do it. And she goes, I don't want. And nervous. And, and Kara starts screaming, don't, don't, don't give me the shot. I don't want the shot. And, and you hear Carrie in the back seat start to pray, God, I'm so sorry. And she stabs her girl in the leg. And we get to the ER. And I tell you that story because I think a lot of you can relate. I think a lot of us can relate to life where one minute it kind of feels like you're sipping on lattes and the next you're racing to an ER hoping your kid doesn't turn into anaphylactic shock and they have to revive her life. Friends, today's message is not a fun one, but it's one that I feel like all of us have been through in life and maybe you're here and you're going through it right now. It's called, How Do You Have Joy? in the midst of suffering. Because not all time do you have lattes, you know, eating cookies. All of us who've lived life for any period of time know what it's like to get the diagnosis, to hear the hard words, to go through a season 
where you just go, I don't know if I can make it through. Friends, that was the setting that Paul was in, the guy who wrote this book of the Bible that we're looking at in Philippians. This guy named Paul, as he's writing, literally his world is he's not at a coffee shop, he's in prison. And he's not sipping on lattes, he's actually chained together. He's bound and chained, and in his setting, was it wasn't because he did anything wrong, he was just telling people about Jesus. And so I, just, I have this gut feeling that there was times in Paul's life that he's going, what in the world is going on? But it's despite all those circumstances, all those realities, that he pens this four-chapter book, this short book in the Bible. And the theme of the entire book is be joyful. Be joyful. And I just go, how in the world does he say that? I mean, how in the world can a guy who's locked up in prison, how can he pen the words always be full of joy? I mean, was he faking it? I don't think so, or he wouldn't have wrote it. I mean, it just kind of bogs my mind. He was chained up, and I just have a gut feeling that some of you right here walk into this room feeling like you're chained to things. Some of you know what it's like to be chained to a diagnosis, chained to cancer. Some of you know what it's like to feel chained to a boss, a work environment, a setting that's no good. I mean, others of you know what it's like to be chained to a season of life. And you just feel chained. Maybe you're single in the room, and every time somebody asks you, hey, when are you getting married? You just feel chained to that season of life. Others of you know what it's like to feel like you're chained to a a midlife crisis or chained, you know, to other different things that you are facing in your life. And I don't want to diminish any of those. I'm just saying, I bet you... In a room like this, each and every one of us could come up with the struggle in our own life. And if you don't have one, I'd say buckle up. They just come. We all know they do. But how in the world did Paul handle this? He actually writes this in verses 12 12 through 14 in the first chapter of Philippians. He says this, I want you to know. This is how he's processing him being in chains. He says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, he's going, I want you all to know about his current realities, what he's saying, that everything that has happened to me has actually helped to spread the good news. He's saying, everything that's happened to me right now is actually moving me forward to pointing more people towards Christ. He says, for everything here, everyone here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, knows that I'm in chains feel like you're in chains. They know that I'm in chains because of Christ and it's because of my imprisonment that many other, other Christians here have gained confidence and become bolder in telling others about Jesus. You see, Paul didn't see his prison as just a prison. He saw it as an opportunity, even in the midst of his circumstance, to make sure that people will hear about Jesus despite his circumstance. Look, in fact, what he says a couple verses later in verse 19, he says, this is all gonna turn out for my deliverance. In other words, Paul says, I'm confident that it's gonna be all good. Big question. In the midst of your struggle right now, your suffering, your circumstance, your chained upness, are you confident that God's gonna show up? Do you have that confidence? And just so you know, that confidence only comes when you have Jesus in your life. 
mean, I can't tell you how many things I read online of stories of massive hurts. And at the end, they go, I can get through it because I have Christ. And I just wonder, are you here today facing a circumstance in your life on your own? Or do you have Jesus? Because Paul had Jesus. He actually goes on to say this in verse 21. He said, and this is just crazy. He says, for me, this is how big of a suffering he was in, how big of a trial he was in in his life. He goes, for me, he's actually thinking about this. Living means living for Christ and dying's even better. Another translation of it, I love this. It says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's not too many people who actually can say, if I die, I'm gonna win. Paul was in a win-win situation because he was so focused in on Jesus. He goes, if I get to live, I know what my purpose is. And my purpose is to tell more people about Christ. It's to make sure that everyone in my life knows that there's a hope, that there's a savior, that there's forgiveness available that you can have confidence in the midst of your pain and your struggle and your fight because of what Jesus has done for me. I can have hope for the future. And then he goes, if, so that's if I live, but if I die, I get to lock eyes with my Savior. I get to lock eyes with the God of the universe who loves me, loved me so much that he sent Jesus to pay the ultimate price for my sin. He's at a win-win spot, friends. If you know Jesus, can I just tell you, you can't lose. If you got Jesus, you win. That's the, that's the source of Paul's joy, was Jesus. And it just it begs the question, do you have him? Do you, we would love it. If you had questions about it, if you'd just let us know, what does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus? We talk about it as stepping over the faith line, moving your trust from yourself to your trust being in Christ. Your trust not being in your money and your circumstances and your kind of gifts and abilities to your trust being solely in the fact that Jesus loves you, that he has hope for you, that he has a purpose in your life. And so with the time left this morning, I really want to give you four statements. Four statements that have helped me kind of deal with the struggles that I've faced in my life. Maybe you're going through some right now. This is going to hopefully be so good. But for those of you who are going, ah, man, this is... This is not me. I kind of feel like I'm sipping lattes right now. I go, we all know life hurts. They come. So you might just jot some of these things down, and I'll try and make sense of them as we go. The first one, though, if you're in the struggle of life, the first thing that kind of helps you have joy, maintain joy, is this. You don't have to understand the why in order to trust God with the what. It's a quote from a pastor, it's a church that we kind of are in relationship with called Life Church. He says, you don't have to understand the why in order to trust God with the what. I love that quote. Friends, Paul's in prison. I bet you there was times where he was tempted to think, hey God, why? I mean, I'm out telling people about Jesus and where you have me at right now is in prison. You ever have that pop in your brain? God, why in the world does my kid have the allergy? I mean, am am I doing something wrong, God? Why? Why? I mean, I wrestle with the why all the time, but when I sit in the why, it kills me. It absolutely kills me, and I know it kills you too, because you try and figure out the why, and sometimes you just can't figure out the why. And so the first point, like I said, you don't have to understand the why in order to trust God with the what. Friends, I'm telling you what, that there are some things that God 
understands that we just can't listen to what he tells Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah 55. This is good stuff. Just to help you process, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. See, you might not ever be able to understand the why. But you can trust me, God's saying, with the what, with the circumstance you're in, you can trust me. I know you don't understand the why, but you can trust me. I think we get this. If you have kids, you get this. You ever try explaining to your kids something that they just can't understand? Last night I was telling my wife about that, and she goes, that's my life every day. You know, like all day long, every day, I try and explain things to these four, you know, man, they just don't get anything. She's like, and then she kind of said, especially, and she was like, stupid thing, you know, silly thing, sorry for the language. She was a silly little thing. She goes, especially cups with straws. She's like, I just do not understand why kids, when they get a cup with a straw, can't understand that you sip it, not tip it. It's like just all day long, put a straw in, and, and like especially our two-year-old, you know, just all over and just changes all day long. I mean, when it comes to our little baby right now, one years old, just celebrated her birthday. I mean, I try and coach her up every meal, and I'm I'm really good at. That. I'm gracious, you know. I'm not yelling at her, but she just I'll put something on her on her tray, and she'll just grab it, look at it, and throw it off. And I'm just like, who, who taught you that? I've never celebrated. I've never even said that was cute. I learned that the first lesson. You know, Mike. Our five-year-old is like, it used to be cute. Hey, Dad, you know, throw it over. Now I'm like, hey, Ella, we don't do that. You know, but she just, some reason, kids are like, oh, that's fun. You know, and I, they just don't get it. Now, catch this. Here's the point on this one. The gap between me and my daughter, the intellectual gap that we have, and I'm not saying I'm brilliant. You know I'm not that brilliant. The gap that we have is far less than the gap between us and God. And so God says, you don't have to know why to trust me with the what. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. This side of heaven, you might not understand why. But you can trust me. And I wonder if you're in the room and you've been facing life's hurts without being able to put your trust in God. And I think the very thing that he would love to tell you right now is you don't have to understand the why. I know you want to, but you might not be able to. And you hear God saying, but you can trust me with the what's going on in your life. God never promises that we'd have understanding. Catch this. He never promises us understanding. What he does promise in the scripture is a peace that would surpass all understanding. That's good stuff. He doesn't promise that you're going to understand it. In the scripture, he promises that you'd have a peace and that your peace that surpasses all understanding would be the very thing that people would go, no way. Do you see them in the midst of their struggle and the peace that they have? And it's that very peace that Paul had in a prison cell, locked up, beaten, that people are just going, are you kidding me? How does a guy like that write about joy? How does he do that? He had a peace that surpassed all understanding and this peace was in Christ. Friends, there's two better questions to ask than just the why question. If you're curious, you can jot these down. It's extra credit. The first question, that's better than why. I understand the why. Nobody would shame you for the why, but a better question is now what? Now what? Because it moves you forward. It's a, it's a now what question. God, now what do you want to teach me? God, what do you want to show me? God, now what? Now that I understand kind of the reality that I'm in, what do you want to do? I mean, this is huge for Carrie and I. 
Now what, God? What does it mean for us moving forward? It's a, it's a forward mover where we have to trust God more and we don't settle into the why, why, why. We go, God, now what? We'll trust you, but now what? What does that mean for us? And the other question is, so what? Now what and so what? Now hear me on this. I do not play lightly on this one. There is a massive difference between dealing with life and death and another mass, and in between a broken lawnmower. Does that make sense? Because some people are losing their cookies over, oh, my lawnmower broke again. Oh, my car, the air conditioning doesn't work. That's my life right now. I'm going, oh, no. So, and, and there's sometimes where you have to, in the right context, go, so what, God? So what? So what? I got to fork up a few hundred bucks to get it fixed. So what? The washer doesn't work. So what? The smoke detectors came on. So what? And you move on. It's not all. I'm just saying it helps some people in the right perspective. Now what, God? or so what, and you move on. The first one that helps me out in the midst of a struggle to remain joyful is you don't have to understand the why in order to trust God with the what. The second thing that you can jot down is your misery could become a ministry. Paul's in prison. Friends, he is absolutely miserable. He knows his misery, and he doesn't sit in the misery. He says, I'm going to take this very thing that's hard and use it as a ministry. I'm going to take this hardship that I have and leverage it for God to do something great. And friends, I'm telling you what, your misery could actually become a ministry. And here's how I know this. I know this because the best person to coach and talk to somebody who's going through a divorce is somebody who's been through one and has God in their corner who's rooting them on. They understand. Was it a misery for them? You better believe it. But God just might want to use your misery and let it become a ministry where you use the very hard thing that you've experienced and move it forward to helping somebody else experience Jesus through their misery. I mean, think of somebody who's addicted to anything. You fill in the blank. I think the very person who was addicted to something is the very person that God could use to help somebody else who's wrestling through it right now. You could name for me any sin, any junk that you're dealing with in life, and I go, and I'm telling you what, that misery with God in your corner could be the very thing that he uses as a ministry. I want to put a picture on the screen of Cy McMahon. He's one of our elders. He's, for all of us, who you're like, what does that mean? He's my boss, okay? And he's one of the guys who kind of helps us kind of stay dialed in on where we're going. It, him and another couple guys are really kind of the coaches in my life. But Cy and his wife, Jen, he's had a story of his misery becoming his ministry. Right now, he's starting a new church, but prior to starting a new church, he was on staff at the Bridge Church in Ottumwa. And one of the enormous roles that he played there was starting Celebrate Recovery. Friends, he in college got into drinking and doing things that kind of plagued him. And it burdened him. And he would be the first one to stand on this stage and tell you that it was only through God, through a loving wife that he had, that he has hope. But Cy didn't stay in that. 
He didn't go, oh, this is my misery, and I'm going to live in this the rest of my life. He says, I'm going to take this misery that I have and use it as a ministry. I'm going to take the very hard thing that has happened to me, and through God's help and his grace and his forgiveness and his love and his redemption power of the story that I had, I'm going to let it become a ministry where I use the very hurts that I've experienced for something greater. God can use your ministry or your misery if you let him. Here's what Paul says about this in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, everything, everything, yep, even the hard stuff, Paul's saying. Yeah, the hard stuff. Yeah, the chains, the prison cell. Yeah, the beatings. He's saying all the setbacks that I've experienced, all of those things. He's saying everything that has happened to me has helped spread the good news. And I'm here to tell somebody right now in the room that God can use your setbacks. He's used mine. If actually I can have a little crowd help here, I just want a little participation in here because I want us to just feel this in our bones. I need someone to say, my setback is my setup. Let's do it again. My setback is my setup. And I'm going to do it one more time and then I'm going to shut it down because I'm not very good at this type of stuff. My setup, oh, right, see, I told you. My setback is my setup. And I'm telling you what, Your misery that feels like such a setback could be the very same thing that God positions to set you up. And I'm not saying it's for every single situation. But I'm telling you what, Cy would agree. In the times in my life that I've felt like the biggest setbacks have come, my parents splitting up. God has positioned that and almost everything else as a setup to love people more, to trust God more, and to make sure that I'm focused in on what God wants in my life. My setback could just become my setup, and that helps me go right into the struggle and have joy. I think Paul would say the same thing. Cy would have said the same thing, and it's been my story. The third truth The third statement that helps you in the midst of a suffering is God doesn't waste your hurts. God doesn't waste hurts. He can't waste hurts. It's not in him to do that. If you're going to go through a season where it's hard, he's going to use that for some way to work it out. Listen to the promise. I mean, it's just so good. If you're in the middle of one right now, I'd say, Write these words down and put them in your back pocket. And every time you start to feel the hurt, you pull it out and you remind yourself of this truth. You hang it in your house. It says this in Romans 8. It says, for we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It's a promise that you can take to the bank. God works for the good of those who love him. If it's not good, then right now in your life, that means that God's not done. God can work in the midst of your suffering. And I'm telling you what, that is the most life-giving news that I have all things, just so you know. It doesn't matter if you're reading in the original language of the text. All things means all things. It's all things. And let me just make it sobering for a while. All things include cancer, leukemia. All things include breakups 
and autism. Deafness, wheelchairs, all things include infertility and miscarriages. All things include things like failed grades, it includes stress, it includes conflict and divorce. All things, friends, includes all things. And that's been something for me that's really hard. But I'm just gonna trust that God can work all things for the good of those who love him. Notice that it's not a blanket statement. It's not like, well, thing. It's a statement for those who love him. I want you to catch that. It, so it really, again, goes back to, just, you know, the guy who wrote that verse is the same guy who's sitting in the prison cell, and he's going, man, all things. If you love God, God can work those things for your good. The question is, do you love God? Is God the center of your life? Do you have faith in Christ? Because if you do, then you can have the confidence that Paul had to go through the struggle that you're facing and go, God can work it. I might not be able to see it now. I want to ask why, but I, don't, I can't even understand the why. I'm just going to trust God with the what. But God doesn't waste hurts. So I simply ask you two questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Because he's not going to waste a hurt. Do you love Jesus? And the second question is, maybe you're here and you're going, I can't believe that verse. And I go, how do you know? Some of you, the minute I started sharing that God can use all things for the good, the defense just starts going up, and I understand, I get it, but I go, how do you know he can't use it for the good? See, I wonder if Paul had moments in his life where he's going, there's no way that God can use this. And as he's reminded through God's Holy Spirit about what he has in Christ, he goes, man, God can use this prison cell, me locked up, beaten and in chains to reach people for Christ. God doesn't waste hurts and I've found from my own life that when I go through struggles of any kind, big, little struggles, that something actually happens in me and I think most often God's growing something in me. Listen to what Paul says in a different book of the Bible. In Romans chapter 5, he says, I can rejoice. He says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. I mean, good grief. Who writes things like that? He says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials for we know that they are good for us. And I'm like, are you kidding me? good for me? you got to give me a break. And he goes on to say, they help us to endure. I don't even know how to say that word, endure. They help us. They actually grow some things in us, he's saying. And how do you learn to do this? He says, endurance develops strength of character, and strength of character develops the expectation of salvation. You want to know what happens? I think a lot of people want to see them grow spiritually, and they want to see themselves you know, mature and get stronger. But I'm telling you what, God oftentimes uses the hurts in our lives to get us stronger. It's like what we want for our kids. We go, I want my kid to grow up to be, you know, able to handle life's pressures. But if we shield them from all the hard things, they never get to develop strength of character. Does that make, it make sense? And I'm going, it might be the very way that God uses your hurt. is to grow in you a strength then when people look at you, they go, no way. They have such a faith in God. They are so strong. 
that they can hold on to God in the midst of their struggle. The theme of the Bible, catch this, is not that you'd be joyful in spite of your sufferings. The theme of the Bible is that you would be joyful in your sufferings. That throughout them all, you can still stand, stall, stand tall and because you have Jesus in your life. Uh, one of the guys who's just so brilliant, his name is Timothy Keller, he's a pastor out in New York, writes a ton of books that I can barely understand. He says this about suffering about the world religions, I'll put it on the screen, he says, Buddhism says accept it. Just what it is, accept it. When it comes to suffering in life, you dealt a bad hand, sorry, accept it. He says, karma says pay for it. You know, figure it out, do better next time, pay for it. Secularism says avoid it, but Christianity, the only one, the only faith says this, be joyful in it, rejoice in it. God doesn't waste a hurt. And that positions us to be joyful even in the middle of it. When God can use this, the fourth truth, fourth statement is joy is a choice. It's a choice. It's something that you choose. Happiness happens by chance. Joy, I think, actually happens by choice. It's a choice that you make. It's a big choice, but it's a choice. You choose Joy, or you choose chance. But I'm choosing joy. I'm gonna do my best every day to choose this thing called joy. Friends, I'm telling you, happiness is based on your circumstances. We know that, and joy is different because it's based on your perspective. Your choice that you're gonna see the lens of your hurts and your sufferings in a different light. It's a perspective change, and it's not easy. But when you do that, you can start to experience joy. Another author and pastor, his name is John Orberg, brilliant thinker. I can understand his books a little bit easier than Timothy Keller. He says this about kind of the developmental of your, you know, process of your joy. He says this, saying the phrase, it could be worse. It could be worse. It can be a powerful exercise in the development of joy. If you've heard John Orberg, which I don't expect that you have, but if, if you were to listen to him, kind of flesh this out, he would say, it's a good exercise for you when you leave this room today to go out to your car, and as you're looking at your rusted out, beat up, you know, minivan or suburban, you might be tempted to go, oh man, if I just had X, then I'd be happy. And he says, force yourself to say these words, it could be worse. It's a choice. It's a perspective. When you then drive home and you pull up to your driveway and you look at your house and you go, there's a hundred things I have to do to get this thing up to the level that I want it to be and I'm not happy because it doesn't have the extra room. And all. He says, before you start complaining, just say this phrase. As you pull up, it could be worse. Then he pushes it to a level that I don't encourage any of you. He says, tomorrow morning when you wake up and if you're married and you're, you know, so when you wake up, don't say it. You can think it, but like, Lock eyes with that person, just nod your head and think, could be worse, you know? Like, again, I don't agree with it, but what he's saying, he's saying this, and it's just a, a silly way of, you know, laugh a little bit to go, a perspective change really helps. Could be worse. It absolutely could be worse. Paul had a perspective change when he had Jesus, and it's why he could say, one of the craziest verses in all of scripture, he says this in verse 29 of chapter one, he says, for you have been given not only the privilege, 
of trusting in Jesus. That's a privilege. It's amazing that we'd have Jesus on our side in our corner. But then he goes on to write this, but also the privilege of suffering for him. That's crazy. That's joy in the midst of suffering when you consider it a privilege. Paul goes, I win either way. If I die, I win. If I live, I win because it's all about Jesus. It's all about making sure that my family, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors know that I have Jesus in my life. And it's just a different perspective. There's a guy named Charlie. Charlie is, uh, is an attender of the church that me and our staff were just at for this later half of this last week up in Minnesota called Eagle Brook Church, great church. They're pouring into us. And Charlie's story was shared and it just rocked my heart as a guy who, you'll watch it, lost his leg. And he chose joy in the midst of his big time suffering. Take a peek at the side screens and I'll wrap it up. This is what one Minneapolis police officer saw that summer afternoon. That's Charlie lying on the ground, bystanders comforting him, after a nasty motorcycle crash just two blocks from his North Loop condo. The driver of this SUV had made an illegal U-turn right in front of the Ducati enthusiast. Charlie's lower left leg was shattered. Every morning when I wake up, I'm reminded of that moment, June 26, 2013, lying on the sidewalk, bleeding, excruciating pain, scared, confused, alone, even though there's people around me. And I know that at that moment, my life has been completely changed. I was rushed to the hospital. I went immediately into surgery. And when I came to, I was told exactly how bad it was. I had a compound fracture of my tibia and fibula and really bad damage to the tissue around it. So the doctor came in and said, I've got options. And I thought that the only option was to stitch me up and get me on my way because I had things to do. And he told me that it wasn't that simple. My leg had been so badly damaged that my two options were a really long road to trying to save it that included bone grafts, skin grafts, and muscle grafts, or the option of amputation. So I was thinking to myself, how does amputation ever become an option in my life when five hours ago, my life was perfect? And the biggest decision I had to make was what I was gonna have for dinner. But now I have to decide whether or not I'm gonna keep my foot. I just called on God. I said, Lord, I'm afraid. I need you right now because this is not what I expected to be faced with today. And so I went to sleep crying. I woke up and I had this indescribable peace and this phrase saying, it's just a foot. It's just a foot. But I'm trying to have a conversation with this voice. I'm saying, yeah, but it's a foot. And it's saying, no, it's just a foot. And when the doctor came back in, I had him confirm what's going to heal me the fastest, the fewest chances of complications, and the best quality of life. And he said, that's amputation. I said, all right, I'm going to take this puppy off. Once I decided to have the foot removed, it could have gone one of two ways. It could have been a pity party. It could have been sad and angry and wanted sympathy, or it could be a celebration. I wanted to have a farewell to Charlie's foot party. This is the last chance you're gonna to get to come and say goodbye to the foot, get your picture taken, because after 36 years of faithful service, sadly, we were gonna to have to say goodbye. 
we were going to make this fun. This was going to be a story about victory and it was going to be a happy ending. And that's when I realized, wow, this is really a chance for me to shine my light. This is the moment of truth that I was maybe put on the planet for, that through huge tragedy, this was the chance that I was going to get to decide how I was going to react to it. And I decided that I am going to choose joy. I'm going to choose happiness so that it shows what God through me is able to do. So learning how to walk again was a process. It started out on a static foot that didn't bend or flex or twist. But after some practice with that, I was able to get a carbon fiber foot and it allows me to play golf 87 days after amputation, mountain biking right away, skiing not very long after that. My life began to feel normal again and I'm doing all of the things that I used to do, but I'm enjoying them more. I now appreciate the richness of so many of the things that I was missing before. And so I feel like I'm going through life now more the way that I was meant to go through life. So looking back, it's very clear to me that a serious faith had prepared me for this life-changing event. This would have been a whole different story had it not been for faith. It would be destruction and it would be anger and sadness, but this instead is a story about joy. A happy guy who, through his faith in Christ, was able to navigate a really tough time and make it a story of victory. I like the guy that I was before the accident, but this whole episode has really revealed something in me that I'm really thankful to find, and I love the guy that I've discovered after it. Isn't that a great story? It's a great story. It was my faith, he said that prepared me to go through this struggle that he had with joy. I uh, want to do something maybe a little bit different to wrap things up today because I have a good hunch that there's a lot of you who come into this room and you're going, yeah, I'm in the midst of one. It might be your marriage. It might be a diagnosis. It might be with a son or a daughter or mom or dad. It might be a struggle that you have in your life with an addiction. And it's just been beating you to your knees. And I just want to give you some, some verses to hold on to, to hear me say over you that might just help kind of spark in you some faith to handle what's ahead. So it might be weird to you. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but I'd love it if you just close your eyes and if you just hear these words from God's word and just take them as if God were speaking them right to you right now. In Psalm 34 verse 18 it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You can almost hear God saying if you're brokenhearted right now I'm here. I'm right here. God's close to the brokenhearted. Goes on to say, and he saves those who are crushed in their spirit. If that's you right now, would you know that God's close? He's not giving up on you. 
Psalm 61, verse 2, it says, when my heart is overwhelmed, when you feel overwhelmed in life, the plea is, God, would you lead me to a rock that is higher than where I'm at now? Would you shelter me? Would you be a strong tower for my enemy? And in the faith of this statement, I will trust in the shelter of your wings, God. I wonder if some of you need to allow God to be the one who shelters you. And the last verse I'd love to share with you is Psalm 91, verse 2. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, of God, if, you, if, you, if you're close with God, you'll abide in the shadows of the Almighty. And then it says this, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Man, I'd love it if each and every one of us knew that we could trust God despite our circumstances. So God, here we are. We want to trust you. We want to ask God that you'd show up in a powerful way. God, we can remember the times in life where you've shown up and where you've brought us out. And God, we need you to remind us of those. Give us faith for what's in front of us. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for being our God. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can stand and sing. We've got a closing song that I think will bless you.